Hello, and welcome to the BFD Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got a great show for you guys today. The big news this week is that Scott Peterson is not going to get a new trial. So evidently, this article just came out. Christopher Weber is the author. A California judge on Tuesday rejected a new murder trial for Scott Peterson nearly 20 years after he was charged with dumping the bodies of his pregnant wife, Lazy, and the unborn child they planned to name Connor into San Francisco Bay on Christmas Eve 2002, which was, wow, I can't believe that was 20 years ago already. But Peterson, now 50, alleged the resulting trial that gripped the world was tainted by a rogue juror who lied about her history of abuse to get on the panel that initially sent him to death row. Superior Court Judge Anne Christine Masulo found that juror number seven, Richelle Nice committed misconduct by providing false answers during the jury selection, but that she did not commit enough misconduct to require a new trial because she wasn't biased against Peterson. Nice did not intentionally conceal information about her life or misrepresent her financial situation to stay on the jury and did not appear vengeful toward Peterson in letters she later wrote him in prison. Masulo ruled in San Mateo Superior Court. The court concluded that juror number seven's responses were not motivated by pre-existing or improper bias against Peterson, but instead were the result of a combination of good faith misunderstanding of the questions and sloppiness in answering the judge wrote in her opinion. Defense attorney Pat Harris said he was disappointed in the decision, which had excused Nisa's misconduct. We believe this sets a bad precedent for future cases where jurors purposefully commit misconduct, but nevertheless know it will be excused by simply shrugging it off with, I forgot, Harris wrote. Jury questionnaires and the attorneys who read them depend on the honesty of the answers in order to get a fair trial. It will make it difficult if jurors believe they can lie and there will be no repercussions. Peterson's defense team plans to push forward until he is freed. It was undisputed that Nies failed to disclose as she was being selected by Peterson's jury in 2004 that she had sought a restraining order while she was pregnant four years earlier. Nies said that she really fears for her unborn child because of threats from her boyfriend's ex-girlfriend in that petition. But the California Supreme Court in 2020 found that Nisa's actions required a hearing to determine if they denied Peterson a fair trial and assigned Judge Masulo to the case. The high court separately threw out Peterson's death sentence in 2020, and the prosecutor decided against seeking the execution, even as they argued he received a fair trial. He was resentenced to life in prison in December. Sharon Roca, Lacey Peterson's mother, said Tuesday that the judge's decision confirms Scott Peterson did receive a fair trial. We appreciate juror number seven for her courage and honesty during the process. No juror should have to go through what she endured, Roca said in a statement governed by the Stanislaus County District Attorney's Office. Scott Peterson argued that Nice fought to join the jury despite her financial hardship, and she entered deliberations determined to enact revenge for Peterson's nearly full-term unborn child, the young victim she nicknamed Little Man. But Nice testified that she had no bias against Peterson until she heard the evidence against him. Nice said in a sworn declaration in 2020 that it did not occur to her to include the threat to her unborn child on her juror form because she did not feel victimized the way the law might define that term. 
She later testified that she answered truthfully based on her understanding of the questions. I didn't write it on the questionnaire because it never crossed my mind, ever. It wasn't done intentionally, she swore during the two days of testimony in February. She also disputed any financial motive to serving in the jury, swearing that she and other jurors never discussed jointly writing their book, We the Jury, until after the trial and verdict. And it was Peterson's celebrity attorney, Mark Garagos, who wanted her on the jury, prosecutors said. Garagos called Nice back as she was prepared to leave after the trial judge dismissed her for financial hardship. Though Garagos said he never would have done so had she properly disclosed her personal history. Nice also denied being biased, even though she said her boyfriend at the same time was seriously unfaithful and denied that he had ever assaulted her despite his arrest for domestic violence. Peterson was arrested in April 2003 after his mistress came forward to say he told her that his 27-year-old wife was gone a month before her actual disappearance. His attorneys provided Rasulo with what they called a credibility chart purporting to show Nice's conflicting statements. Miss Nice simply forgot prosecutors responded in court filings, arguing that any mistake she made did not demonstrate bias. Her testimony and her demeanor clearly showed she was not a vengeful, scorned woman who sought to punish Peterson, they argued. Among other issues, Masalo had to decide with which side had the burden of proof. Prosecutors said Peterson's attorneys failed to prove Nice committed juror misconduct. Inadvertent or unintentional mistakes do not count, they argued. Peterson's attorneys said Nice clearly concealed facts during the jury selection, even unknowingly, which they said shifts the burden to prosecutors to prove that she wasn't prejudiced. All in all, to sum this up, he's not going to get a new trial. He will remain in prison for the rest of his life, unless he wins some other sort of appeal. But the next big news that came out recently was Harvey Weinstein was found guilty of rape in a Los Angeles trial. And Andrew Dalton wrote this one, but... After a month-long trial and nine days of deliberations, Los Angeles jurors found Harvey Weinstein guilty of the rape and sexual assault of just one of the four accusers he was charged with abusing. But the three guilty counts involving an Italian actor and a model known at the trial as Jane Doe 1 still struck a major blow against the disgraced movie mogul and provided another hashtag MeToo moment of reckoning five years after he became a magnet for the movement. Weinstein, 70, who was two years into a 23-year sentence for a rape and sexual assault conviction in New York that is under appeal, could get up to 24 years in prison in California when he's sentenced. He was found guilty of rape, forced oral copulation, other sexual misconduct, and another sexual misconduct count involving the woman who said he'd appeared uninvited at her hotel room during a Los Angeles film festival in 2013. Harvey Weinstein forever destroyed a part of me that night in 2013, and I will never get that back. The criminal trial was brutal, and Weinstein's lawyers put me through hell on the witness stand. But I knew I had to see this through to the end, and I did, the woman said in a statement after the verdict. I hope Weinstein never sees the outside of a prison cell during his lifetime. Weinstein was acquitted of a sexual battery allegation made by a massage therapist who treated him in a hotel in 2010. The jury was unable to reach a decision on counts involving two accusers, notably rape and sexual assault charges involving Jennifer Siebel Newsom, a documentary filmmaker and the wife of California Governor Gavin Newsom. A mistrial was declared on those counts. Weinstein looked down at the table and appeared to put his face in his hands when the initial guilty counts were read. He 
He looked forward as the rest of the verdict was read. Harvey obviously is disappointed in the verdict. He knows what happened and what never did, Weinstein's spokesperson Judah Engelmeyer said in an email, saying that there was a strong basis for an appeal on the convictions. Harvey is grateful for the jury's work on the other counts, and he's determined to continue his legal challenges and in ultimately proving his innocence. Los Angeles County District Attorney George Gascon applauded the accusers for their bravery to testify in the case, saying in a statement he was disappointed by the split verdict but hope it brings some measure of justice to the victims. Harvey Weinstein will never be able to rape another woman. He will spend the rest of his life behind bars where he belongs, Sybil Newsom said in a statement. Throughout the trial, Weinstein's lawyers used sexism, misogyny, and bullying tactics to intimidate, demean, and ridicule us survivors. The trial was a stark reminder that we as a society have work to do. Sybil Newsom's intense and dramatic testimony, in which she described being raped by Newsom in a hotel room in 2005, brought the trial its most dramatic moments, but only eight of the 12 jurors agreed to find Weinstein guilty of these counts. Jurors were deadlocked 10 to 2 on a sexual battery count involving Lauren Young, the only accuser who testified at both Weinstein trials. She said she was a model aspiring to be an actor and a screenwriter who was meeting with Weinstein about a script in 2013 when he trapped her in a hotel bathroom, groped her, and masturbated in front of her. Lacking any forensic evidence of an eyewitness account of years-old allegations, the case hinged very heavily on the stories and credibility of four women at the center of the charges. The women's stories echoed the allegations of dozens of others who have emerged since Weinstein became a hashtag MeToo lightning rod, starting with stories in the New York Times in 2017. A movie about that reporting, she said, was released during the trial and jurors were repeatedly warned not to see it. It was the defense that made hashtag MeToo an issue during the trial. However, emphasizing that none of the four women went to the authorities until after the movement made Weinstein a target. Defense lawyers said two of the women, including the one he would be found guilty of raping, were entirely lying about their encounters with Weinstein. They said that the other two had 100% consensual sexual interactions that they later reframed. Defense attorneys said during the trial that if Sybil Newsom hadn't reached her later prominence, she would be just another bimbo who slept with Harvey Weinstein to get ahead in Hollywood. Regret is not the same thing as rape, Weinstein attorney Alan Jackson said in his closing statement. He urged jurors to look past the woman's emotional testimony and focus on the factual evidence. Believe us because we're mad. Believe us because we cried, Jackson said jurors were being asked to do. Well, theory does not make fact and tears do not make truth. All the women involved in the charges went by Jane Doe in court. The Associated Press does not typically name people who say they have been sexually abused unless they come forward publicly or agree to be named through their attorneys as the women named here dead. Prosecutors called 40 witnesses in an attempt to give context and corroboration to the stories. Four other women were not part of the charges but testified that Weinstein raped or sexually assaulted them. They were brought to the stand to establish a pattern of sexual predation. Weinstein beat four other felony charges before the trial even ended when prosecutors said a woman he was charged with raping twice and sexually assaulting twice did not appear to testify. They declined to give a reason. Judge Lisa Lynch dismissed those charges. 
Weinstein's latest conviction, hands of victory to victims of sexual misconduct of famous men in the wake of some legal setbacks, including the dismissal of Bill Cosby's conviction last year, the rape trial of that 70s show actor Danny Masterson, held simultaneously and just down the hall from Weinstein's ended in a mistrial. And actor Kevin Spacey was victorious at a sexual battery civil trial in New York last month. Weinstein's New York conviction survived an initial appeal, but the case is set to be heard by the state's highest court next year. The California conviction also likely to be appealed means he will not walk free, even if the East Coast conviction is thrown out. And we will keep you posted on those charges and what will happen next. Now let's talk about the main case for the day. I am going to talk today about the Casey Anthony case. And I find this one really interesting because it came up way back in the early 2000s and it was all over the news. Everyone was talking about Casey Anthony and her daughter Kaylee. And then it kind of died down and faded out for a while. And now there's some recent bombshell claims that are coming out about this. And Casey Anthony is actually on a documentary. So I wanted to talk a little bit about this case. Casey Marie Anthony was born August 9th, 2005, and she lived in Orlando, Florida with her mother, which is not too far from where I am now. Her mother, Casey Marie Anthony, was born March 19th, 1986. At the time, both Casey and Kaylee lived with her maternal grandparents, George and Cindy Anthony. July 15th, 2008, a 911 call was made by Cindy, who was Kaylee's grandmother. She claimed that she had not seen Kaylee for over a month and that her daughter's car smelled like death. Cindy said that her daughter Casey had given a wide variety of explanations as to where Kaylee might be before finally admitting that she had not seen her daughter in weeks. Casey Anthony then told detectives that her daughter Kaylee had been kidnapped by a nanny on June 9th and that she'd been trying to find her daughter as well, but she had been too scared to call the police. On December 11th, 2008, Kaylee, who was two years old at the time, was found. Her remains were skeletal by that point and she was found with a blanket inside a laundry bag in a wooded area near the family's home. Investigative reports and trial testimony varied between duct tape being found near the front of the skull and the mouth of the skull, but the medical examiner also mentioned duct tape as one reason she determined that Kaylee Marie Anthony died by homicide. The cause of death, however, was listed as death by undetermined means. According to Casey Anthony's dad, Casey left the family home on June 16, 2008. She supposedly took her daughter Kaylee with her, who was about three years old, and did not return for about a month. Casey's mother, Cindy, asked at that point repeatedly to see Kaylee, but Casey said she was too busy with work in Tampa. At other times, Casey claimed that her daughter was with a nanny identified by the name of Zanadia or Zanny Fernandez Gonzalez, and that the two were at theme parks or at the beach. It was eventually determined by investigators that this woman, Zanny, quote unquote, did in fact exist, 
but she had never met Casey, Kaylee, or any other members of the Anthony family or any of Casey's friends. Learning that Casey's car was in a tow yard, her father went and recovered the vehicle and he and the person who helped recover the vehicle smelled a very strong odor from the trunk of that car. They later stated in testimony that both of them believed that that was the smell of death or a decomposing body. But when they opened the trunk, there was only a bag of trash inside. As I mentioned earlier, Casey's mother reported her granddaughter missing July 15th with the Orange County Sheriff's Office. And during the same telephone call, she confirmed that Kaylee had been missing for over a month. She was distraught and she said, there is something wrong. I found my daughter's car today and it smells like there's been a dead body in the damn car, quote unquote. So detectives from the Orange County Sheriff's Office began investigating this disappearance and they found a lot of discrepancies in Casey's signed statements. When questioned, she said that her little girl had been kidnapped by this Zanny nanny. And although she talked about her, Zanny had never been seen by the Casey family or any of her friends. And they determined in fact that there was no nanny. Casey also told police that she'd been working at Universal Studios, but it was a lie she'd been telling her parents for years. When investigators took Casey to Universal Studios on July 16th, 2008, They asked her to show them her office, and she lied to them, moving around the building for about 25 minutes before she stopped, smiled, and jokingly admitted she had no office there, and she'd been fired some time ago. So she had been working at Universal Studios, but had lost her job a while before that. Casey was then arrested July 16, 2008, and was charged with giving false statements to law enforcement, child neglect, and obstruction of a criminal investigation. She was denied bail, and they said that she showed willful disregard for the welfare of her child. On July 22, 2008, there was a bond hearing, and the judge set her bail at about half a million dollars. In August 2008, after one month of being in jail, she was released from the Orange County Jail after the bond was posted by the nephew of California bail bondsman Leonard Padilla in hopes that she would cooperate and Kaylee would actually be found. On August 11th, 12th, and 13th, 2008, meter reader Roy Cronk called police because he found a suspicious object in a forested area near Casey's home that she shared with her parents. He then was directed by the sheriff's office to call the tip line, which he did and never got a return call. He then called again and was eventually met by two police officers. He then reported what he had seen, which appeared to be a skull near a gray bag. On that occasion, the police conducted a short search and stated they did not see anything. However, December 11, 2008, this same gentleman called the police again, and they searched once more and eventually found the remains of a small child in a trash bag. They also found duct tape hanging from hair attached to the skull and some soft tissue left on the skull. So over the course of about the next week, more bones were found in this same area, and her death was also ruled a homicide at that time with the death listed as undetermined. It was no surprise after that that Casey was offered limited immunity in July of 2008 
by prosecutors related to her false statements given to law enforcement. This was renewed on August 25th and set to expire August 28th, but she did not take that limited immunity deal. In September of 2008, she was released again on bail for pending charges, but was fitted with an electronic tracking device. The bond was posted by her parents, who signed a promissory note for the bond. Then, in October of 2008, Casey Anthony was indicted by a grand jury on charges of first-degree murder. She was also charged with aggravated child abuse, aggravated manslaughter of a child, and four counts of providing false information to the police. She was later arrested and said to be held without bond. Later in October, the charges of child neglect were dropped against Casey Anthony because, quote, the evidence proved the child was deceased. The state sought an indictment on the legally appropriate charges. Then, October 28th, Anthony was arraigned and pleaded not guilty to all charges. Interestingly enough, in April of 2009, prosecutors announced they were going to seek the death penalty for this case, which was pretty severe. During the trial, over 400 pieces of evidence were presented. There was the strand of hair recovered from the trunk of Casey's car, which was similar to the hair taken from Kaylee's hairbrush. The strand showed root banding, quote, which hair roots form a dark band after death. This is consistent with hair from a dead body. So the gentleman who found the remains repeated his story and Friday, October 24, 2008, the forensic report judged the results from the air sampling procedure performed on the trunk of Casey Anthony's car showed chemical compounds, quote, consistent with a decompositional event based on five key chemical compounds out of over 400 possible chemical compounds for decomposition. Investigators also confirmed that there were multiple accounts of people saying that the trunk smelled strongly of human decomposition. They also found traces of chloroform in Casey Anthony's car trunk. In October 2009, officials then released 700 pages of documents related to this investigation, including records of Google searches for the terms of neck breaking and how to make chloroform on a computer accessed by Casey. This was presented by the prosecutors as evidence of a crime. According to detectives then, crime scene evidence included residue of a heart-shaped sticker found on duct tape over Kaylee's skull. So detectives found a sticker on the duct tape over Kaylee's skull and a blanket at the crime scene matched Kaylee's bedding from her grandparents' house. There were also photos entered into evidence from the computer of Ricardo Morales, an ex-boyfriend of Casey. This depicted a man leaning over a woman with a rag captioned, win her over with chloroform. Witnesses also said that Casey had conducted extensive computer searches on the word chloroform 84 times, which suggested that she had planned to commit murder. They later discovered that there was a flaw in the software that had misread the forensic data and that the word chloroform had been searched for only one time and the website in question offered information on the use of chloroform in the 19th century. But what purpose would she have for searching for that term? That seems just bonkers that she would even need to search for that. Jury selection began May 9th, 2011 in Clearwater, Florida. 
The case had to be moved because it was very widely reported in the Orlando area. And in order to get an impartial jury, they had to bring them in from Pinellas County. Jury selection took longer than they anticipated and ended May 20th, 2011. At that point, they had 12 jurors and five alternates sworn in. There were nine women and eight men on the jury. And the trial took six weeks. The jury at that time was fully sequestered. They wanted to avoid any undue influence and information available from outside the courtroom. The trial itself began May 24, 2011 in the Orange County Courthouse. Judge Belvin Perry presided over the case. The prosecution alleged intentional murder and sought the death penalty against Casey Anthony. And that was huge news at the time. They said that she had used chloroform to render her daughter unconscious, then put duct tape over her nose and mouth to suffocate her. They then alleged she left Kaylee's body in the trunk of the car for days before she disposed of it. They also characterized Casey Anthony as a party girl who killed her daughter to free herself from parental responsibility and enjoy her life. However, the defense attorney claimed that Kaylee drowned accidentally in the family's pool June 16, 2008, and was found by Casey's father, George Anthony. She said no one wanted Casey to spend the rest of her life in jail for child neglect and proceeded to cover up Kaylee's death. They argued that this is why Casey Anthony went on with her life and failed to report the incident for over a month. They alleged as well that it was the habit of Casey to hide her pain and pretend nothing was wrong because she had been sexually abused by her father since she was eight years old and that her brother Lee had also abused her. The defense also questioned whether the gentleman who found the bones actually removed them from another location and further alleged that the investigation by the police department was compromised because there was a desire to feed a media frenzy about Kaylee Anthony's murder rather than the more mundane drowning theory. They did admit that Casey lied about the nanny, but said that this was relatively inconsequential. Closing arguments for this case were heard July 3rd and 4th, and the jury began deliberations on July 4th. On July 5th, 2011, the jury found Casey Anthony not guilty of counts one through three, and this was regarding first-degree murder, aggravated manslaughter of a child, and aggravated child abuse. They did find her guilty on counts four through seven for providing false information to law enforcement, causing law enforcement to expend further resources. On July 7th, 2011, the sentencing arguments were heard, and eventually, Judge Perry sentenced Casey to one year in the county jail and a $1,000 fine for each of the four counts of providing false information to law enforcement, the maximum penalty prescribed by law. She got 1,043 days credit for time served, plus additional credit for good behavior. This resulted in her being released July 17, 2011. In September of that same year, complying with Florida statute, the judge ruled as well that Casey Anthony had to pay $217,000 to the state of Florida. And this was for access, investigative, and prosecution costs if requested by a state agency. She had to pay those costs directly because she lied to law enforcement about the death of her daughter. This also included search costs. 
In January of 2013, a Florida appellate court reduced her convictions from four to two counts. Her attorney had argued her false statements constituted a single offense. However, the court noted she gave false information during two separate police interviews, several hours apart. Now, this case was very heavily covered in the media and attracted a significant amount of national media attention. It was a huge topic on shows like Greta Van Sestern, Nancy Grace, and Geraldo Rivera. It was also featured on Fox's America's Most Wanted, Dateline, and 2020. Nancy Grace referred to Casey Anthony as Tot Mom and urged the public to let the professionals, psychics, and police do their jobs. More than 6,000 pages of evidence were released by the Orange County Sheriff's Department, including hundreds of instant messages between Casey and her ex-boyfriend, Tony Ruschiano. These were the subject of increased scrutiny by the media for clues and possible motives in the death of Kaylee Anthony. And then George Anthony, Casey's father, was reported missing January 22, 2009. He had failed to show up for a meeting with his lawyer. He was found in a Daytona Beach hotel the day after sending messages to family members threatening suicide. They took him to a local hospital for psychiatric evaluation, and he was later released. Now, this case was widely compared to the O.J. Simpson murder case because it had such widespread media attention, and there was a huge shock at the not guilty verdict. Dozens of people raced to the courthouse. They were hoping to secure seats. I guess there were about 50 of them that were open to the public during the trial. Crowds of people collected outside the courthouse and reacted with anger. They chanted disapproval and they waved protest signs. People took to all kinds of social media to talk about how much they hated Casey Anthony after she was found not guilty. So following the trial, there was this sort of a passionate hatred that was directed towards Casey Anthony. And oftentimes, people that knew Anthony described this as a media assassination. The family also received death threats after the not guilty verdict. And then on July 6, 2011, Casey Anthony's jailhouse letters got released to the general public. They were originally released, not to the public, in 2010. But in more than 250 handwritten pages, Casey Anthony described her life in jail, what she missed, and her plans for the future. On August 12th, she was ordered to return to Florida, though, to serve a year's supervised probation for unrelated check fraud convictions. She had pleaded guilty to that charge in January 2010, and the judge in that case intended for her to serve her probation after proceedings in the murder case. But in an error of sentencing, the documents allowed her to serve her probation while awaiting trial. So she did return to Florida in August and served out her probation in an undisclosed area, despite the fact that there were numerous threats to her life. Because of these threats, the Department of Corrections did not enter her information into the state parolee database. In 2011, her parents issued a statement saying that she would not be living in their home when she returned to Florida to serve her probation. I guess they wanted to kind of distance themselves from this very unpopular person. And then in August 2011, the Florida Department of Children and Families released a report based on a three-year investigation into the disappearance and death of little Kaylee. The spokesperson stated, it is the conclusion of the DCF that Casey Anthony failed to report her child from harm, either through her own actions or lack of actions, which tragically resulted in the child's untimely death. Casey Anthony then filed for bankruptcy in January 2013. Her estimated liabilities were between 500000 and a million. 
There were several civil suits that came out of this in September 2008 that Nanny Zenadia Gonzalez sued Casey for defamation. Evidently, this young woman, Gonzalez, told reporters she lost her job and was evicted from her house. She even received death threats against herself and her children as a result of Casey Anthony's accusations. In September of 2015, a judge ruled in favor of Casey Anthony, stating there's nothing in the statement to support the accusations of Gonzalez that Anthony intended to portray the nanny as a child kidnapper and potentially a child killer. So that case was dismissed. And then in July 2011, the Texas EquiSearch, TES, a nonprofit group which assisted in the search for Kaylee Anthony in 2008, when she was believed to be missing, sued Casey Anthony for fraud and unjust enrichment. They estimate that they spent about $100,000 searching for little Kaylee, even though she was already dead. The organization itself said they expended 40% of the group's yearly resources and could have spent that money looking for other missing children. They also learned that Anthony knew all along that the little girl was dead when the trial began, and they eventually settled out of court in 2013. And Casey Anthony was listed as a creditor to them, entitled to about $75,000. And this has popped up in the news quite a bit since this case actually happened. But lately it has blown up because there is a documentary about this case that is now out. Casey Anthony makes bombshell claims about her daughter's death in the first ever on-camera interview. Samantha Kubota wrote this article, but it's been more than a decade since Casey Anthony's name dominated headlines around the country. She is now finally speaking out in her first on-camera interview since she was famously acquitted in 2011 of charges of murder, manslaughter, and child abuse following the death of her two-year-old daughter. Casey Anthony, Where the Truth Lies, is a three-part limited docuseries and premiered at the end of November on Peacock. In the series, Anthony maintained some of the same claims her legal team made during her defense all those years ago, including that she was sexually abused by her dad, George Anthony, and that he lied to cover up Kaylee's death. George Anthony has strenuously denied all of these claims in court, but Kaylee was last seen June 16, 2008. Cindy Anthony, Kaylee's grandmother, reported her missing July 15, 2008. The next day, police arrested Casey Anthony on child neglect charges. At the time, she had told investigators, as I mentioned earlier, she'd been taken by a babysitter. Six months later, little Kaylee's skeletal remains were found about a mile away from her grandparents' Orlando home. She lied to investigators. Anthony was eventually convicted of four misdemeanor counts of lying to investigators who were looking into her child's disappearance in 2008. She incorrectly told investigators her daughter had disappeared with a babysitter, whom she later said did not exist, and said that she worked at Universal Studios in Orlando when she did not. It was the right guilty verdict. I did lie to law enforcement. I admitted that I lied to law enforcement, so I am convicted as a liar. It's the truth, she said in the new series. In an attempt to explain why she had lied, Anthony said it stemmed from being abused as a child and still following her father's instructions, even after seeing her daughter's limp body. I lied to everyone because that was my whole life up until that point, she said in the series, acting like everything's okay, but knowing nothing was okay. I had years of therapy, and I'm trying to analyze my own behavior and explain my own behavior. All of this is the reaction of trauma. 
I made myself look crazy and gave law enforcement absolutely no reason to believe or trust anything that I said, she continued. I get away from an outside perspective. All of this seems so, she trailed off. Because even for me, it still feels that way. As far as I'm concerned, there's no justifying my actions or behavior except to say that I was doing what I was conditioned to do. In the documentary, Anthony reiterates her previous allegations that her father abused her between the ages of 8 and 12, which her father, again, denied. When I was 8 years old, my father started coming into my room at night, she said, but I was physically hurt and I can't tell mommy what happened or she'll get mad at me. That's what I was told. George Anthony declined to be interviewed by the Peacock series. He did not respond to other requests for an interview. In the documentary, Anthony says her family also asked her to hide that she was pregnant at the age of 18. She said she was raped at a house party after being drugged. I had a couple beers and completely lost my memory because I was drugged, she said. I woke up with my top on, my jeans on the floor, with my underwear and my bra still inside of my shirt, but up over my breast, she said. She added that she was lethargic and extremely disoriented from the drugs and could feel that she'd had forcible sex. She said she had initially claimed the baby was her ex-boyfriend's, but he eventually got a paternity test and discovered he was not the father. I lied to everyone, she said. That's what I'm saying. I'm so effed up. It's just years of feeling like I need to live a certain life or show people I lived a certain life because I didn't want people to pity me and I didn't want my kid to grow up thinking she was a product of something so bad that I did not want her. Anthony recounted the morning her daughter likely died for the cameras. She said that morning she woke up to make her daughter breakfast but wasn't feeling that great so she went back to bed, turned on the TV, and Kaylee laid in bed with her. I've been a light sleeper my entire life, she said in the documentary, because I'm used to someone opening the door while I'm asleep. I'm used to being on alert, especially with my child next to me. It's part of the reason she slept in bed with me so much. She said she knew her dad was home, but she fell asleep and was asleep for a while. The next thing she remembers, she said it was her father shaking her, asking where Kaylee was. She said it didn't make sense to her because she thought her toddler had been in bed with her. Anthony added that her daughter would never even leave my room without telling me, even if she had to go to the bathroom. She knew she wasn't allowed to be just in the house by herself, she said. Anthony said she started searching around the house and then in the yard for her daughter. By the time she came back from searching outside around the house, she said her dad was standing there with her. She's soaking wet, she said tearfully. I can see him standing there with her in his arms and handing her to me and telling me that it's my fault, that I did that, that I caused that. She said she collapsed with Kaylee's body in her arms, which felt heavy and cold. And instead of calling 911 or trying to revive Kaylee, Anthony said her father took Kaylee and told her it was going to be okay. I don't know how long I sat outside. I don't know where he went. He took her from me and he went away, she said. I don't know where he went and I don't know what he did. Anthony says she understands people will question why she didn't call 911 or waited to tell her mom. I know people are going to question why I didn't make a phone call and why didn't I call 911. Why did even I wait to tell my mom anything, but I didn't tell her anything? Why lie? Knowing that I failed to protect my child and I kept failing her even after that, I failed her again and again and again because I still protected the person who hurt me. It was like I was brainwashed. It wasn't until much later that I started to really realize why, she said. It's like I had Stockholm Syndrome. During the 31 days, I genuinely believed that Kaylee was alive. 
My father kept telling me that Kaylee was okay, she recounted in the new docuseries. There were no threats, I just knew that I had to do what he wanted me to do, the same reason I knew that since the time I was eight years old. Just do what he wants, it worked before, do it now. I did what I needed to do to survive. She added that her father would tell her Kaylee was fine and to just keep doing what I'm telling you to do. You guys will be reunited soon. That's what sticks with me. He told me at one point we would be reunited soon. Anthony said she was conditioned by her father and wanted to believe her daughter was alive. I really wanted to believe him and maybe that's the disassociation. Maybe that was trying to protect myself from the pain of having known deep down all along that something happened and I didn't want to confront it, she said. I wish it were a simple answer and a simple explanation, but nothing about trauma or abuse is ever simple because you're just trying to survive. The whole time he told me she was going to be okay. It's what I chose to accept because there was this little girl inside of me that wanted to believe he wouldn't hurt her the way he hurt me. Anthony never outright said in the new Peacock series what she thinks happened that morning and directly says she doesn't know what the truth is. It's why all of this is so hard. I live with that guilt of feeling like I failed her and didn't keep her safe and protect her. I've always wanted the truth because I've lived so long without it, she said, but I don't know if I can handle all of it, if it would be better to know or just keep not knowing because I don't know what the truth is. All I know is that something happened. In the years since her trial, Anthony has been working for her defense lawyer, Pat McKenna. She also said in the docuseries she lived at his home with his family following her trial as she got back on her feet. She said she will always wonder what could have been if she had handled her daughter's death differently. It's a hard thing to live with every day because nothing's going to bring her back, she said emotionally. Even if I someday get the answers that I need, it's never going to be enough. It's never going to be enough. This case was just fraught with all kinds of allegations of her being this party girl. And who knows if she actually got a fair shake with the public. But in any case, um, this docuseries, if you want to check that out about Casey Anthony, is, is on the Peacock Network. I suggest you go check it out and hear her side of the story at the very least. And again, I want to reiterate that all of the allegations against her father, George Anthony, have never been proven um, in any way or substantiated. So we're going to go ahead and wrap the case up for the day. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can shoot us an email. We're at the bfdpodcast at gmail.com. We will drop that as well as the articles that we have used for the show today into the show notes for the show. We also occasionally post pictures from our cases on our Instagram or at the BFD podcast. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye!